welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Welcome to another chapter of Turn the Page, the official podcast of Syosset Public Library. I'm Jen, uh, one of your co-hosts for today, and I am here with my colleague. Hi, this is Jessica. How are you? And we are here today with the author of a fantastic new book that we have really, really loved. Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Oh, yeah. Hi. Thanks. Thanks so much, Jen and Jess from the fabulous Syosset Library. Um, my name's Lori Lico Albanese and my new novel is called Hester. And it is a retelling of the Scarlet Letter that asks and answers the question, was there a real Hester Prynne? And if so, what is her story? That is such a cool concept and it is such, a, such an interesting take on a book that I think um, a lot of us think we know really well because most of us had to read it like at some point in our educations. Yeah. And it's so interesting just to see like what uh, a slightly different perspective can do to like a story that you think you know really, really well. How did you, um, like, where did this idea begin? Was there like a particular image or scene or something that kind of like sparked this idea for you? Yeah, actually, I love that question. Um, the original idea came sort of the way ideas come, which is both both like gradually, but then all at once. I wrote a couple of other historical novels and then I got my MFA at the University of Southern Maine and I researched the history of historical fiction and women's historical protagonists in American literature. And I landed on this idea uh, on the fact that um, The Scarlet Letter is America's original historical novel and Hester Prynne is our original historical uh, feminist protagonist. Uh, We can come back to that idea or that question mark is um, did Hawthorne expect him to be, expect her to be a feminist heroine. But anyway, we'll bookmark that. So um, I was really intrigued. And of course I had read the book when I was in high school. And then my kids read the book when they were in high school. But then one day I was just thinking, I was walking in the park with my husband and we were thinking, what should I write next? And I said, what about who is the real Hester Prynne? And I called my agent and she said something I can't say on, you know, the air, but basically she said like, yeah, go for it. I love it. So it's truly started with both the knowledge and the idea that Hester was the original feminist protagonist and the original um, uh, bold single mother also in America. And then just with a curiosity and curiosity is a great way to start a novel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I thought that it was a really good uh, idea. I actually love uh, love what you just said, uh, because um, Jen and I were actually talking a little bit just about how this novel is read and sort of understood. And also just like how Hawthorne himself is sort of perceived. I think there's a lot of uh, misconception for some reason that like he was very pro puritanical society and I don't it's you know maybe because 
things were different back then. Uh, you know, I kind of feel like th thinking about it now and reading what I did about him and how critical he was of the society, you know, you mm -hmm. kind of wonder like modern day, if he would be on Twitter, just bashing the Puritans <laughs> and over again, but he was, he really was very critical of um, puritanical society. And what I didn't know was that he was descended from one of the judges yeah. of the Salem witch trials and like actually changed the spelling of his name to disassociate himself with that Hawthorne. Yeah. Yeah. He's a very complex person, both as a writer and historically. Uh, and one of the things with Hawthorne, as so many of the people, the intellectuals and the writers, and especially in that time, the early 19th century, um, he was very conscious of creating an image for a public image for himself. And because they weren't on Twitter uh, and they didn't have Facebook pages, you know, they kept a lot of journals and they saved their letters. And then very importantly, many of them in that time period, especially, but not only Hawthorne, burned what they didn't want saved for the record. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, that is so, so interesting. Um, what I, you know, what really strikes me about that is the way that, um, you know, the way that like Hawthorne relates to the history of Salem mm -hmm. is is obviously like kind of political, but also extremely personal, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it was like weirdly, especially in like a post-2016 society, like very, I, like, I, I identified a lot with like, you know, having family members that you don't, uh, with whom you don't agree oh. necessarily, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really, that's true. I mean, one of the things I really like about the work that I do and I really enjoyed with Hester is looking at the past through the lens of the present. Um, because, I mean, essentially we could cancel so many writers from before the 21st century, if that was our aim. Um, but I try to think about him in the context of the time and place where he lived. And, um, you know, what what I was interested in about Hawthorne is the fact that he was a classmate from Bowdoin College. He was a classmate of Franklin Pierce. And Franklin Pierce was a Democratic president. And at that time, Democrats were not what they are today. And so they were not abolitionists. And I thought that was really interesting to consider and work into the novel. I was also really interested in, um, and you know, there's a there's a, an African American storyline that runs through the book, and I was really interested after I created that character, which is my Hester's neighbor Mercy and her children. Uh, I was interested in the fact when I looked back that if you read a Hawthorne book without knowing there were black people in America, you would never find out from reading one of his books. So again, sort of that twentieth. Uh, 21st century, 21st century lens on the past is, is a really interesting thing to do. And you can do a lot of things with it. And it's interesting to decide how far do you want to go? You know, what direction do you want to take it in? And I, I tried to take it both in a feminist direction, in a sort of Black Lives Matter direction, um, and also uh, looking at how immigrants are treated in this book and immigrants today. So besides just trying to make it 
kind of a fun, sexy story about this woman who gets involved with a bad boy, I, I tried to bring in a lot of the cultural aspects as well. Mm, that's so great to hear. And it does segue really well into my next question, because so much of the historical detail and the, um, how do I put this, the way that the character dynamics would have been shaped by social and political forces ring really true. And I'm wondering, um, like, was there a research process for you in writing this book? Did you look into um, any particular types of, you know, historical sources or for particular uh, perspectives that helped you bring this world to life? Oh, Jen, the public libraries all across the Northeast were very important to me. Um, I mean, thank you. First of all, thank you for that compliment. I did extensive research. I mean, really extensive research. Um, uh, one of the things I was thinking about this because I'm putting together a workshop for people who want to write historical fiction. And one of the most important things is you have to be able to get your character up, get her dressed, have her walk down the street and understand how she sees her place in society and how others see her in society. Um, but you also have to be able to know what are people eating? You know, what are people shopping for? What do the streets look like? So one of the, one of the most important, but by no means the most important thing I did is I read the Salem Gazette, which was a weekly or twice weekly newspaper that came out in Salem. And I read the newspaper that was being published in 1829 in Salem. Um, and that was really, that was really interesting. I read some books that were written in the time period. You know, there were a lot more female writers than we are aware of in that time period. And also in the beginning, I had this idea that perhaps the early American feminist Margaret Fuller had been romantically involved with Hawthorne, which is not an original idea with me, um, but I found it and I wanted to, I, I did a lot of research into her life thinking maybe she would be my Hester Prynne, which of course she's not, um, because I couldn't imagine her and Hawthorne intimate. I couldn't make it happen. So I had to abandon that. But that's just to say, uh, Margaret Fuller was the most important. She was known in Europe and America for her uh, feminist book that was published in 1842 or 1840, I'm going to say, Women of the 19th Century. And I read her work and I read her biography. And so I found out a lot about how women were treated, how women were seen, and how women felt mm -hmm. in that time. And that was some of the most important research I did. So, yeah, that's so, so cool. And what's really interesting to me about that is, um, you know, the sort of details that really bring a historical fiction to life are these sort of like lived in, in details that you've mentioned, like the food and like the house settings and how people decorated in the clothes and how they presented themselves. And those are the details that you like really can't find in traditional history because traditional history concerns itself with men and war and yes, so government. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Men and war. I'm reading or rather I'm revisiting Natalie Haynes' A Thousand Ships, which is the women in the Peloponnesian Wars. And it's just like, it's like, there were women during the, you know, there were women in the Odyssey and they have their own stories and there were women in Troy. And it is really, really uh, one of the things that I think is, uh, 
I take as a sort of a mission of mine, if you, if you can have a mission as a writer, to sort of write women back into the stories and give them their voices because women are in the margins. Just like, I mean, I feel like this novel is, you know, Nat Hawthorne considered himself an outsider, which makes him a really interesting character because he was only an outsider because he considered himself an outsider. He wasn't really an outsider. He was actually an insider. And when push comes to shove, you know, he realizes that in the novel himself. But this kind of question about who's an insider and who's an outsider is also, you know, really fun for me. And so it's important too to give your protagonists, your female characters, as much agency as they could truly have in their time. Um, because, and the truth of the matter is, my Hester wants to have a dress shop and be a dressmaker and a pattern maker. And coming from Scotland in 1829, that was actually very ambitious mm. for an uneducated woman. Oh, absolutely. And there's a lot of ways in which she is, um, you know, I don't want to say ahead of her time, but perhaps like is that doesn't want the things that society wants her to want or that her, you know, that not even her family really wants her to want because her father up front is like, you you know, uh, no. And her husband is absolutely yeah. against, yeah. you know. Right. Her dad says to her, the best thing you can do is marry well, marry well, and you'll never have to work again. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, Another, an earlier book I wrote is said in, in Renaissance Italy when the really the only choices for a woman were to be, um, you know, a wife, uh, a nun, or a prostitute. There really were, I mean, there were exceptions, you know, an occasional doctor worked in there, but mostly those were your choices. And I was, in, I'm always interested in what choices does a woman have in the society in which she lives? And then how does she go about making the most of the opportunities that she's able to find and create for herself? Mm, yeah. And you know, like a lot of people, I think when they think about historical women, see agency as a sort of all or nothing thing, like they either had it or they didn't. And it's really is more of a, a spectrum, you know? So like, yes, like a woman's decisions would have been like, very constrained. She might only have like two or three options for what she could do with her life, but that still requires like an active choice, you know, and that like you can still assert your agency, even if you are limited and like looking at how women moved within and around, you know, the boundaries that were placed on them is like a very interesting source for story in any time period, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I mean, and the thing is sometimes a woman or anyone who's an outsider has to uh, be direct in their approach, right? But sometimes you have to find your workarounds. And I think that, you know, without, I, without making a subjective or objective, you know, statement or opinion about that, it's just the truth. Um, how a person wields whatever power they may have um, depends on that person and what they're able to do and imagine for themselves and then what the world around them will allow. Mm. Yeah. And that was fun. That was fun for me to do that. So thank you. I, I thought that, um, first of all, this is something that um, I always have trouble pronouncing it. Somebody please help me. Synesthesia. 
<laughs> synesthesia. Right. Yeah. Okay. So synesthesia is something um, that I've learned about probably within the last decade and mostly through literature because I don't feel like it's something that is usually talked about, but um, it seems like a lot of people like to write about it. Um, and one of the things I was curious about was uh, just with Isabel and this being okay. something that Isabel and this being something that happens, um, you know, occurs within her family, it seems to be hereditary. Are mm -hmm. there accounts of women who, not just women, I suppose, because men as well were accused of witchcraft, who um, had been marginalized and accused of this, who had expressed seeing um, colors with letters or, you know, sounds being associated with yeah. colors. I, I think one of the things that's really interesting about it, and again, like I said, this is kind of something uh, based on, you know, the literature I've read with characters, you know, obviously, if this is something that you experience, you don't really realize that this is not the, yeah. you know, the standard for everybody, unless somebody actually points it out to you. And is yeah. like, well, what do you mean that that has a color? Or what do you mean that that letter is yeah. a specific, you know, so uh, I, I was really curious and fascinated about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love the uh, sort of the whole theme around synesthesia and all the. So to answer your question, uh, no, there's actually no one on record that I found who experienced synesthesia and then was accused of witchcraft for it. I made that part up. <laughs> um, what's definitely true is that people didn't understand it. It wasn't, you know, really understood or researched until the mid 19th century. So anyone who did experience it before then would have not understood it at all. And in fact, we still know, I mean, I interviewed a couple of people with synesthesia and I, I really, because I needed to know what it felt like at a really personal level. Um, and it is true that people don't, necessarily know that they're experiencing the world sensorily in a different way than everyone else is just like like let's face it we don't know that we all see color the same way we might all agree that this particular vibration of color is called red but who knows if you see it the way i see it right so with synesthesia the way i landed on this idea of um, hester slash isabel the protagonist having synesthesia was i started thinking of course i was rereading the scarlet letter and working through the scarlet letter and i am you know, Hester Prynne in The Scarlet Letter is sought out for her exceptional embroidery, but every single woman embroidered and sewed then. So here's this woman in The Scarlet Letter who is an outcast, right, who's been cast out of society, but people are still coming to her to have them to have her do their embroidery, she must have been very gifted. And I and I thought, well, what if she had synesthesia? And then I thought, maybe she did have synesthesia. And then I thought, she does have synesthesia. And so that's really how I landed on it. And I was already writing the character as well into the book when I landed on this idea and I tried it out and I have a very nice local writing group and everybody in the writing group was like, oh, I love this. So that made me know that it kind of worked. Um, and so I ran with it. Yeah. <clears throat> That's so cool and so interesting. Because um, I think the things that you do with uh, synesthesia in the book 
and the way it gets used like has a lot to say about like the intersections of like perception and magic and art you know because like art is kind of like a special kind of magic and it's a special way of seeing you know but in the synesthesia like to outsiders uh is perceived as a kind of magic and a dangerous kind of magic perhaps you know and I think that there's all these interesting overlaps happening there yeah I'm thank you yeah I really enjoyed that but you put it so well so thank you Mm -hmm. um yeah one of the things I was really looking at in the book is um let's see you articulated it really well Jen actually this idea that creativity is part mystery and that there's even a magical element to creating something out of nothing um and people don't understand even the even creative people themselves even though you work and work and work towards something and you hone your craft in the in at the end of the day you're just thrilled when something comes out that that works you know um, and I was really interested, and this is something we didn't talk yet about, like the quote magic witchcraft, but you're t- touching on it now. Um, you know, I, I, I think what I was trying to say is there are a lot of things that we can't see that are there for people who want to and are able to tap into them. Mm-hmm. Creativity, perhaps you know, the mixed sensory experience that isn't a chosen thing. And yes, things that are magical. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I, you see things in your life. I see things in my life or know things that I didn't know how I knew. And is that witchcraft? You know, is that, what is that? And I think sometimes it's just that some people are open to those sort of frequencies. And that's kind of what I was trying to touch on in that even the people who are open to them don't really understand them. And so they can be misunderstood. And that one of the things I really liked for Isabel is say is thinking that her, her gift is her curse, right? Um, that her synesthesia is a gift, but it's also terrifying and it's misunderstood even by her. Mm-hmm. And certainly by the women going back in history in her family, mm-hmm. uh, which yes, I totally invented, although Isabel Gowdy, queen of witches in Scotland was a real figure. And you can go back and read the trials of Isabel Gowdy, um, which some of them are notes taken at the time, but then some of them were written up later. Mm. Yes. Amazing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. um, Wow. (laughs) You know, because I was thinking about like with the flashbacks to her um, and the flashbacks in Salem, like there's interesting things going on there with like history and how it's recorded and, you know, like why things are described the way that they are. Um, And gosh, (laughs) sorry, I have to like just absorb this for a second. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of the resonance through time Mm -hmm. and how a story is told and repeated and changes and is also held on to is um, I think, you know, what you're looking, what you're talking about, right? Like I was looking at the way, you know, 
we all have, we think we know history. This is one of the things that I was really intrigued by with this book. We think we know history, but history is only, first of all, told by the people who write it down, often men. But I went to the Boston Public Library while I was researching this book, and I went to the Margaret Fuller archives, mm -hmm. and I read through her correspondence. And while I was reading her correspondence in one of those rooms where you have to wear gloves, you know, you can't bring anything to drink, and there are locks on the doors. I asked the librarian, I was like, this is amazing. Am I actually holding a piece of paper that Margaret Fuller wrote? And she said, oh no, uh, those letters have been copied and copied over again. We don't even know where the real originals are. Oh, wow. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? And so what we accept as a document um, has passed through many hands. And anybody who played a game of telephone when they were in kindergarten knows what that can mean. Mm -hmm. um, and I was I was interested in that, and I'm interested in the um, you know what's preserved and what's emphasized and what's lost. Um, and I tried to look at that in the novel through the centuries. Mm. It was also something I was really aware of, Jen, because I'm writing a novel in you know in the year 2021, 2020 at the time. Uh, that was written in 1850 that was set in the 1650s or 70s. So I'm moving up and down through that time already. Um, and I was really aware that I was writing a historical novel about a historical novel. And it was actually not setting it in the time in which that original novel was set, but I'm setting it in 1829, which is when Hawthorne is alive and hasn't yet written the Scarlet Letter. Mm. So yeah, a lot, they say sometimes that all novels are about time. And in a way, this one is definitely about how the past impacts your life. Mm. Absolutely. And I think that there's um, a really cool way in which, um, you know, um, the way uh, that our protagonist sees extends to the way that she sees her own family history, you mm -hmm. know, because like a lot of her family members think that like, oh, these things that like, you know, uh, our, our forebear did, um, you need to hide this, you need to like not show this, you need to not make it a part of your life. And she's a lot more accepting of her past and she sees her ancestor a little bit differently than the rest of her family does, like so much so that she embroiders like her family history on her, her yeah. cloak, you know? And I think that like, there's a very interesting way in which she also sees like history differently than oh, in, nice. in what she the world around her. Yeah. It's yeah, actually a good, I, I, I hadn't really thought about that, but <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that is true. Um, and I think also just the idea that some people think a lot about their history and their family history and some people don't think about it very much at all and I think in America we're kind of I mean I grew up on Long Island and I was um so I'm another generation than you guys but I was very aware when I was growing up there that there was no history there you know there was none there was history but <laughs> there's like so like you know, we, when you talk about it, because we were kind of talking about um, Hawthorne before and how Hawthorne really did not want to be associated with his ancestor who did some terrible things. There's history on Long Island, 
but it's not necessarily history people want to address for what it was. I mean, True. everybody's, for instance, everybody's True. really cool going to Robert Moses Beach and having everything named after Robert Moses, yeah. but nobody wants to confront who Robert Moses was and what he did. He's yeah. the beach guy and he's the yeah. reason have Long Island, but he's also a big reason why certain people were kept out and kept down in this area uh, the bridges the bridges on the parkway so the, the bridges yeah um so the i think about like because you know we live in jersey now but we go back to long island and we inevitably my husband or i say it as we're driving under one of those bridges oh here's robert moses legacy so you're right there was there of course there's history there's history that goes back of course to indigenous people but I guess what I meant is we didn't live with an awareness of our history. I feel. We're the grandchildren of yeah. immigrants and the grandchildren. I was the grandchildren. No, the great grandchildren of immigrants. And everybody had very quickly become Americanized. Like there was no I know. No, I knew nothing about anyone who came before my great grandparents came. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and still don't really. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you go to Europe and even in the Midwest or even in New England, I feel like people are more attached to their history. And I'm sure I'll be challenged. I hope someone's listening and will challenge me because that's also, you know, it's true. I'm sure there are a lot of people who are a lot more attached to their, you know, in place history on Long Island than my family and I were. You know, I think it speaks in interesting ways, though, to, you know, like um, a lot of the people who came to Long Island specifically were people like, um, you know, Edward, who was like explicitly trying to make a new start and break with his past, you know? So a lot of these are like decisions of the people who immigrated. It's like, no, I don't want, I don't want to remember my past and I don't want my, 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 you know, the people uh, who come next to remember it either. And so like when there's a conscious break, yeah. Yeah. You know, I know. And also Long Island in general, when you're, when you're talking about it, you know, you do have people who want to talk about, uh, I mean, you know, you can, you can see in the names of the towns that there is a native American population that is clearly been regulated elsewhere. Um, But, uh, you know, and you have people who can say, I was related to the Townsends who were part of the Culpeper Ring. But when you think about Long Island, you think about these um, these suburbs that were built for people transporting, you know, back and forth in the city or people who fought in World War Two. And um, from what I understand, my grandfather never on that side, my mother's side never wanted to talk about his time in World War Two, you'd get things every now and then. Uh Uh, But he was also, um, he was also born here, uh, versus, you know, my my father's family who were immigrants and would sometimes you know, you'd hear things about Poland and Russia, but really the, the whole idea of moving to Long Island and buying a house in Levittown was forgetting that, you know, like what what happened to get there. Um, yeah, and it, and- it is very interesting. And everything was new on Long Island, right? And that was because it, my dad worked for IBM in Jericho and and he used to talk about Grumman all the time because he used to go in and out of Grumman quite often. And I feel like Grumman, which is what Beth Page, is it still there? Yeah, it's still there, right? Are they it's doing? Like a, it's actually there's like they shoot movies there now. Yeah, 
Right. (laughs) But Grumman, you know, I think Nassau County grew up around Grumman. It was built because they put Grumman there and then and then they built the houses. So uh, we've kind of gone off course, except from this (laughs) idea of, um, you know, immigrants coming to a new place, letting go of their past. But also one of the things in the book is who belongs and who doesn't. That was something that I, you know, I tried to touch on Um, because New England also, listen, New England, let's not have this conversation only about, you know, Long Island people wanting to erase the past. New England was, and Salem especially, it was enriched in, Salem was enriched in two ways. One was privateers. So what were privateers? Those were private ships that were allowed by the government to to attack and take the goods off of any other country's trade ships. And so the people who became rich in Salem became rich from a privateer attack very early on when they sold all the goods and made $2 million on them. And then the other way that Salem made their money was they First of all, at one point, every household in Salem that could afford it, every middle-class household had a slave, but also the cod and the trade. They were cod kings, which is a phrase we know, but what were cod kings? Cod kings were selling cod for the middle passage or drying it and sending it, drying it for the middle passage or drying it and sending it down to the West Indies for the sugar plantations. And so, you know, our whole country has a history that is a challenge to look at and embrace um, without sort of offending people who, you know, want to think of it in another way. Um, and that's probably as far as we should go on that conversation. Yeah, um, that's a, this is like a whole other, um, this is a whole other avenue we can take. Yeah. But yeah. I, but I do see, you know, especially since this is a story set in Salem. Yeah. Um, what you're, what you're saying for yeah. sure. Yeah. And that's why I put a freed, a formerly enslaved person. Well, no, she's born free, but her mother was enslaved. That's why, um, you know, I was not why I put her in the story. To be honest, she stepped into the story all on her own. Um, But that's why I enjoyed having her there. Um, Yeah. You know, there's a lot of really um, interesting, like, parallels I think or comparisons to be made between like the different the ways that different characters kind of like either embrace or don't embrace their outsider status that has been accorded to them you know because like um for um for Nat uh it's a it's a choice right like he styles himself as an outsider and it's something that he has chosen rather than something that has been forced on yeah. him like uh, yeah I w- yeah you know. exactly like I'm reading him as almost like the emo kids in high school yeah. the, the way you know he's he he has all of this but you know he he ha- he almost has the privilege to be Nat you know that was one thing um whereas Isabel does not yes he he, he he's like one of those kids who's like you I know right well, I, I come in and I could wear my hair all black and like this and be moody but I still have this legacy Right. I think you're right. 
an emo emo is what he would be now that would be fun to make like a nat rap song yeah <laughs> I, I don't know if i can start it right now but i i kind of like the challenge um yeah and remember his father died when he was four and you know that's kind of even how i opened the book is that he's a little boy standing at the shore writing poetry uh, you know and he knows his dad will never come back uh, and the one thing that is is true to Nat, because I want to be fair to him, is that, yes, he's privileged in one way, um, but they're not a wealthy family. Uh, his father, he and his mother and his siblings needed to live with the mother's family after his dad died, because his dad died at sea. And, uh, you know, the family was passed on, not what he inherited, but the debt, because a lot of times you went into debt to go to sea. And then it was when you came back from your voyage and you got and you got a share of the profits is when you made your money. So they were kind of poor, but they were an original family. They were, so he was an insider outsider. Also, you know, many writers feel that way. They put themselves, we put ourselves like on that little border there. Um, going back to synesthesia, you know, Lady Gaga and Billie Eilish have synesthesia. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yep, I don't I've know heard that because yeah. of the research, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and uh, Kandinsky, if you think about those paintings that look like music, mm -hmm. they look like music because he saw um, color and images when he was listening to music because he had synesthesia. Mm -hmm. So it's out there. And I think, it, and, and sometimes people who have synesthesia have more psychic experiences, which isn't really explainable by sensory unless we're talking about extra sensory perception yeah so and they're all kind of center on like you know perceiving things that to like somebody with standard vision would say is not there you know <laughs> so it's kind of like you can yeah. see there could be like links with that that's really, really yes mm -hmm. yeah well yeah. this has been um, absolutely wonderful. I wanted to thank you so much for making the time to come talk with us. Um, we loved this book so much and we're so excited to, to see it out there and, you know, just other people pick it up and get to experience it. <laughs> and I have to say the language is gorgeous. Oh, yes. It's so, I mean, it's like, you know, you, you, this is a book about somebody who's, a um, embroiders very well. It's almost like, Embroid like language embroidery, just the the choice of words and just the rhythm of the sentences. It felt very much in its own way, like a tapestry. And the cover is gorgeous too. Oh, the cover! Yes, I love the cover. Uh, I had it here in case I was going to show it, but of course, there's no showing. Um, thank you, guys. It was really fun to talk to you, Jess and Jen. Uh, librarians are some of my favorite people. Um, thank you. Thanks for joining us. You okay, can thank check you. out Hester at a library or bookstore uh, book near you. Mm -hmm. And for now it is time to close this chapter. Bye-bye. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.